Hi everyone, this is Dave Wright and welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. I hope you're having a great week working with your team wherever you're listening. Before we get to today's podcast, a quick recap on the latest content to come out on playerdevelopmentproject.com. Over the last week or so, we've seen the release of our fantastic masterclass discussion with Head of Specialist Coaching at the FA, Aaron Danks. Now, if you haven't tuned in for this one, don't miss it. Aaron was part of the World Cup winning 2017 England Under-20 coaching staff, and he's a top coach with huge amounts of experience in youth development. You can see the full video discussion for free on the website now. We've also had the launch of Dan Wright's new podcast, On the Grass, and we have more episodes coming soon, so look out for those. Finally, we've just released a brand new Q&A video. We received a really good question from Steve via Twitter around clubs planning their coaching roster around age groups and whether coaches should stay with their team through the age groups or perhaps move on to a new coach each season. Dan and I discuss a few of the pros and cons in our latest Q&A video on the site now. Today's podcast is an excerpt from our latest masterclass discussion on applying positive psychology in football with Lara Mossman. Lara is currently completing her PhD in positive psychology at La Trobe University in Melbourne and she's one of PDP's original contributors. Her content is truly excellent, and you can search her name on the website to read and see more of her work. Today, we share a portion of the conversation where we discuss Lara's research, some misconceptions around positive psychology, the importance of the environment, and what autonomy really is. Thanks again to Lara for her time and effort in sharing her expertise with the PDP community. As usual, a quick reminder that if you haven't signed up to become a PDP member, We have monthly or annual membership options available at playerdevelopmentproject.com so you can sign up and access all of our top coaching content. We're constantly working to improve the member experience and create new features. Finally, if you get a chance, leave us a review for the podcast and I really hope you enjoy today's discussion. Hi everyone, welcome to another Player Development Project Masterclass discussion. I'm delighted to be joined by the lady we love to call our resident expert in positive psychology, Lara Mossman. Lara, how are you? Very good, thank you, Dave, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this masterclass with you. It's great to have you back on board, and uh, for those that haven't seen Lara's work on the website, I highly recommend it. Some of our best-read blogs uh, around psychology have been produced by Lara over the last few years, so welcome to the conversation. It's great to have you on board, and and we'd love to talk a little bit before we get into some questions around positive psychology and coaching and your areas of expertise. Can you just describe a little bit of the focus of your research and, and, I guess, how you got into it? Uh, My main focus with my research is around how coaches can facilitate or create environments that are better for player well-being um, or motivation. So really environments that can help players to flourish, um, to avoid things like burnout and dropout. Uh, The main reason I got into this is because my background isn't in psychology per se, it's in positive psychology. I have a Master of Applied Positive Psychology and I work at the University of Melbourne in the Centre for Positive Psychology where A lot of my colleagues are studying or researching positive school environments, so how teachers, for example, can facilitate um, classroom environments for young people that are better for their flourishing. Yet I would spend every weekend almost on the sidelines of youth sports games of a variety of different sports, and I would see a lot of things going on that I thought, I don't think we're always creating the most positive sports environments that we can for young people. Um, that really engage their love of learning in a sport. So I sort of took, if you like, what some of my colleagues were doing 
um, and thought about how might I apply positive psychology into youth sports environments. It's it's really interesting, and without a doubt, it's an issue that you know needs to be further discussed and further investigated. So it's great to have you uh, working in that area and putting out some great research. In terms of some of the common misconceptions around positive psychology or psychology, and I know you you like to talk about your specialty. But are there sort of common misconceptions about where these ideas fit within a sporting context that you've come across? I think in general, with regard to positive psychology, for example, some people think it's a bit of a happyology kind of science. And they kind of think it's about making people happier. And that, you know, what I'm trying to do is to make young people in sports environments happier. Mm. And that can possibly be part of the picture but it really isn't the whole picture. So when we're talking about flourishing, we're talking about optimal performance or functioning for young people. So that could be things like, uh, for example, resilience or character building. It doesn't necessarily mean being joyfully happy and excited at every moment in their sport development. And in fact, that isn't a goal that I'd be working towards anyway. Mm. Um, In terms of positive psychology and maybe psychology more broadly, uh, sometimes I think people think it will be a quick fix to a problem. Um, And the other one, I don't think that coaches or certainly the way coach education has been set up in a lot of codes is really focused enough on the psychological aspect of sport. Um, Because I believe, and I know certainly from looking at some of the research that really the psychological aspects of sport perhaps far outweigh some of the technical and tactical aspects, um, which are a sort of a, you know, you must have in a given within any game. Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of real gems there. I agree with you. I think sport needs to do better in this area. Um, I think an area I've spoken with a number of contributors about recently, and it's an area that's interesting me, is around athlete identity, um, which we can sort of dive into as well, which I think needs to be addressed, particularly in performance environments and maybe with athletes transitioning to lives out of sport. That's a really interesting one. But the the idea of that you touched on with a quick fix does that sort of then tie back into the concept that coaches have to build relationships and take a long-term view with their players in order to to sort of get these psychological or social outcomes that you're sort of working on? Yes, I believe that's a very important role with coaches. And I know we're going to explore that in this masterclass. So we'll get to a few points around how to do that and so forth. Um, So yes, I think that is a very important aspect of it. Excellent. Well, look, obviously at PDP, one of the consistent messages we've promoted over the last few years is the concept of the environment being crucial to players at all levels, maximising their potential and, and having an enjoyable sporting experience. So how can coaches go about incorporating a little bit of positive psychology into their environment and their approach? Well, Dave, I don't want to get too sciencey on this <laughs> masterclass for you, but really what I do is try and translate what is in the science in theories that are known as things like self-determination theory and achievement goal theory and translate some of the findings for coaches in a way that they can understand and actually apply. And there's some real key areas that I think are quite crucial um, and also come off the back of work like uh, Joan Duda, for example, with the Empowering Coaching um, Project. And so that would be to dial up things like autonomy supportive behaviours, which we'll have a look at, which is really the opposite of being too controlling, if I was going to really simplify it. Mm. Um, Also, the idea of creating what are referred to as mastery environments, uh, which aligns very much with the idea of growth mindset, which some coaches may have come across. Um, The idea that we're helping guide players towards what it is they're trying to work on in their sport 
as an individual rather than trying to compare them to other players um, or, you know, things that they can't control in their environment, mm. uh, particularly. So, for example, if I have a player that I want to work on their weaker foot or their less dominant foot in, in if I was talking about football specifically, you know, what are the steps that that player needs to take in order to be able to improve that? What are the behaviours I'd look for in that player in a training session, for example? And have I communicated that well enough to the player so that they can work on that themselves and they understand what it is they're working towards? Um, rather than just saying, you know, you're not as two-footed as, you know, another person over there, you need to be that good. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really tell them what they have to do. So mastery environments are much more around um, players understanding their own personal development. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It ties back into the lot of message, a lot of messages we've been talking about with individual learning and individualizing your approach to coaching. I know in conversations with our lead researcher, Jimmy Vaughan, and some of his work around self-determination theory, he often talks about the word control. And I know you've mentioned it a couple of times where coaches either want control or perceive they have control or at times may behave like they've lost control. What are, the, what are some of the dangers that go with this word when we always think about how we as adults or coaches can control youth sporting environments? If I was going to highlight probably the biggest dangers over a longer period of time, this isn't necessarily going to be instant, but too much control as, you go, as um, young people go through teenage years is very much likely to, um, or it's very much more linked to dropout and burnout. Um, mm. You know, players feeling exhausted in their sport, all of those sorts of things, and just stopping enjoying playing. And that's why eventually they can pull out of sport or drop out. Um, and too much control, if you think about it yourselves, if you think of about a relationship that you've been in, where somebody, it could be a friendship or, you know, a parent or a, a partner, whatever. If somebody's been excessively controlling and, you know, it doesn't feel very nice when you're the person on the other end of that, that you have no um, decisions or don't have any control over that environment. Um, and we're not talking about give, being permissive and giving players absolute freedom to do whatever they want. That would be um, also very unhelpful and a whole bunch of not very good outcomes for players. Um, but it is about, in a very structured way, providing players with that sense that they have some control over their environment, that they have some, they're self-determined. If I was um, going to sort of describe maybe the difference between this control versus autonomy idea, um, it really comes down to, you know, if you were watching from the, the sideline, as, as I know you do from your coaching line, you know, uh, coaching box, Dave, at the weekend, <laughs> like that. If a player is excessively controlled, a good indicator might be that they're looking at the box every single time they make a mistake or they're looking at a parent every time they make a mistake, or yeah. you know, maybe it's not a mistake, but maybe it's before they take an, a step or an action. They're not making decisions for themselves. They're not processing what the, the information that a coach has given them in training and then translating that into the playing environment themselves. They're really just needing to be guided every step of the way because they're being fully controlled in that sense in every decision on the field. Um, and that's not an optimal way of functioning, you know, for any team. I don't know if you've seen this sort of behaviour before. Yeah, look, I certainly have. And I think um, there's, you know, there, there are concerns at times when I think you see the idea of joystick coaches. And, and this is a, another area we've discussed a lot where coaches are potentially talking players through the game. I've certainly seen players who fear what potentially is coming from the sideline, um, whether that's from the parent side or the coach's side. Yeah. And I, 
I often think we've got to have empathy with the kids around the idea that there could be messages coming from two sides of the park whilst they're trying to interpret all the information in the middle of the park as well. Um, I think there are often two messages coming. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's certainly an issue. So I think, um, I think you know, the, the concept of uh, control that we've touched on obviously segues nicely into the next question around autonomy. Now, you've already mentioned this word. It's a it's something that I think when you talk about creating um, healthy environments and, and players who have got some ownership around what they're doing, um, autonomy's got to be there. But can you can you dive in a little bit more detail for us around the meaning of autonomy and why it underpins so much of your research and then potentially how co coaches can integrate that with their environment in terms of their day-to-day -day language and understanding of it? So um, autonomy is really being... Um where you feel like you have a sense of control over your environment or some input or involvement in your environment, um, and rather than having everything that you do being controlled by other people. So um, we know with coaching, for example, there are ways that, it, I should have said sorry before I said that, that autonomy is one of the three sort of things we know are essential to flourishing in young athletes, um, which the other two being a sense of relatedness in their team and also a sense of competence. And by competence, we don't mean that, you know, you have to be an expert and pro-level player at whatever sport you're involved in, but at least competent about where you're at and an understanding of what your next step or next level is that you need to get to and how you might get there. Um, so you feel like you have some sort of um, ability to, um, you know, be effective, if you like, in your mm. environment. Mm. Um, and we certainly know there's some behaviours that can support um, young people's autonomy in sport um, and help sort of, if you like, build to lead to this flourishing in young people. Mm. I like to think of the idea of um, competence breeding confidence. And I think obviously the more competence a child feels over what they're, what they're sort of uh, working on in, in whatever sport or whatever environment for that matter, I think, you know, if we can as leaders and coaches create environments where there is where you're empowering people and where you're giving children decision making and, and you're allowing them to think, then that inevitably breeds confidence in my opinion and my experience. I mean, is that something that you think is, is that something you relate to and is that something you would see through the research? Yes, I certainly think confidence is an integral part of the competence aspect of things. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, so, I don't know, Dave, have you seen the movie um, Pele, The Birth of a Legend at all? I haven't, and I probably should have. I, I think you should have a watch of that. <laughs> that would be an example of where a coach, um, or where he has a sense, so I guess, of all, uh, autonomy and the control over his environment when he's young. They don't have adult coaches. You know, he's in a game where um, he's sort of expressing himself fully in terms of his skills and, and ability. And... As he moves into more um, academy type coaching environments, elite sort of sporting environments and clubs, you see through this film um, the control aspect coming into play from the coaches and quashing um, mm. you know, any sense of how um, Pele might have wanted to play as a young person um, and you know the pushback that happens there. So yeah, I'd recommend having a look at that movie for this sense of what control can look like if it's um, too stifling and how that can impact the well-being of somebody. 
Excellent. Yeah, I think that just, again, citing Jimmy's work and, and the idea of um, control stifling creativity, that certainly aligns with some of the messages that he's he's promoted. I, I want to move on to uh, parents. Now, parents sometimes get a bad rap as being really difficult to deal with for coaches, and some coaches potentially don't want to talk to them or don't want to include them. I've spoken to other clubs that are actively trying to include them and create community where parents, coaches, and players are having a relationship, which I think is healthy. But obviously parents play a massive role in their child's sporting experience. And if you're lucky enough to be on the grass for four hours a week with your players or you know, sometimes less or more depending on your environment, it's not a lot of time. But those conversations in the car and what's going on at home could indeed have more impact than what us coaches are doing. So have you got advice for parents as to how they can best ensure their children stay active and engaged in sport? Yeah, so um, I think you mentioned it, the car ride home um, in terms of uh, or staying well, first of all, actually, sorry, before the car, I can spot that, but um, don't offer rewards for your children. So one of the mm. worst things you could probably do, especially for a child that enjoys the activity that they're doing in the first place, is to offer them things like money for scoring goals. I have seen it many, many times, and it has so many um, negative implications down the track for young people's motivation in sport. Um, that I would avoid doing anything like that at all costs, and particularly when your child enjoys the sport that they're participating in in the first place. It, it can actually turn them off over time. Mm. Um, other things would be avoiding punishment. I've you know, come across people who've talked about parents making their children walk long distances home from sports games when they haven't performed well as a form of punishment for not playing well. Um, perhaps though the most common one I've come across is um, parents not speaking to their children in the car home when um, you know they haven't performed as they would have liked to have seen them perform on the, mm. on the pitch sort of thing um, and that's sort of withdrawing attention from a child is a form of punishment that can also have some quite negative consequences um, and another one I would say is avoid um, trying to make your child feel guilty so for example if they're expressing um, that they're not perhaps enjoying the particular sport they're playing at some time, or maybe they don't want to go on a day because it's raining outside. It might not be a long-term issue, but just something short-term. Um, so avoid comments that might say things like, you know, if only I'd had half the chance when I was your age, I'd be throwing it away. You know, that sort of guilt-inducing um, comments, because they're all sort of around controlling um, the behaviour, if you like, which is most likely not necessary for most um, young people. Mm, yeah, that last one, uh, I guess, ties into the concept of living vicariously through kids and and that, that can be dangerous. And I have seen that unfold, um, you know, and I've spoken to people in the academy space who say sometimes kids will rise through that in spite of their parents, um, others it will break them. And it yeah. often can, can depend on the kid, but it's a very, very difficult one. Well, you referred to some negative consequences around the extrinsic motivators you've touched on, all those carrot and stick ideas. What are some of those consequences that can unfold uh, as time goes on uh, for the for the player? So that can link directly into motivation. And I one of some a big part of my research is around the quality of motivation. Because originally with motivation, people used to sort of think um, of it as in a player having an amount of motivation. So, for example, um, we'd look at things like what we call extrinsic motivation, which is rewards and punishment um, type motivation. And we'd look at intrinsic motivation, which is that enjoyment and that interest and that inherent satisfaction with the activity. And we'd sort of say, how much does a player, for example, have of each of those? 
add them together and that's the amount of motivation the player has for their football, for example. Um, but really with the self-determination um, theory research that you know Jimmy's looking at and that I'm looking at, it shows that it's not the quantity of motivation that matters, but the quality of motivation mm. that is important. And so through that, we have the more what are called autonomous types of motivation, which are higher quality. And that's when you do things because you find them interesting, you enjoy them, um, you know, you value the activity or it, it, you have a sense of identity around that activity. So it feels like who you are as a person. Um, and that's a young player that might say, you know, I'm a hockey player, you know, because they, they see yeah. that as an important part of their identity. Um, on the other side of the coin, we've got lower quality forms of motivation, which are the more controlled forms of motivation. And so in the more controlled forms of motivation is things like, um, you know, that reward and the punishment, the guilt aspect, but also the pride aspect. And parents can tap into that last one, which is one I haven't given an example for you yet, by saying things to players like, you know, you're a much better dribbler than so-and-so, or you're better at scoring goals than someone else, or mm. you're not as good as such and such a player at um, uh, passing the ball, whatever it might be. Uh, and all of those forms of motivation are considered lower quality forms of motivation. And the consequences for parents, if they're offering things like, is come back to your original question, rewards or punishments for certain behaviours such as scoring goals, is that if a child is enjoying their sport in the first place and we start offering those rewards and those more controlled forms of motivation, over time, the player's motivation can become that lower quality form of motivation, so more controlled. Mm. One example in older athletes in the research is um, male athletes who get scholarships to US you know, sporting academies. They report a lot of internal enjoyment, higher quality motivation for their sport, um, before they get their scholarships. And then once they enter the system and they're on their scholarship, they report less enjoyment for their sport. Um, and partly because they're being offered such high stakes and, you know, extrinsic rewards for their activity. So from the research, and it isn't just in sport, it's in a whole range of areas. The research sort of shows us that we can uh, ruin, if you like, high quality motivation by offering um, rewards or, you know, punishing players and things like that. Mm, it sounds like a great example of adults piling the pressure on and, and uh, you know, I guess it's it's often a conundrum, particularly in the, you know, space where players are going from maybe 16 through to that first team age where they where they really are, especially in, in um, performance environments potentially where they're looking to try and make a career in the game where I saw a great, great quote from Alex Inglethorpe at the Liverpool Academy which said, um, you know, talent will get you to 16 but character will get you to 35 and I thought that was a really nice nice kind of um, example of the importance of psychology and coaches addressing it um, and, and sort of helping de develop those character traits. Just, just want to touch on the idea of identity. We did mention it at the start, and I know it doesn't necessarily directly tie in um, with everything you do, but I'm sure you've got some thoughts on it. With young people identifying with their sport and potentially adults creating pressure environments, and I'm not saying all environments are, by the way, I think it's important to, to say that it's some great environments, but we wanna keep improving them. What are the dangers or, or what are some of the risks when it comes to young people tying their identity to that sport if they potentially you know, lose or fall out of love with it or they lose that, that sort of contract? Or there's, have, have you sort of got many examples of how, 
um, identity can can really be chained to these things and the damaging effects of just identifying as a sports person. Well, I think it's with anything, if you put all your eggs in one basket, then, um, you know, the, the danger is that you can lose a lot of um, sense of self-worth and things like that if that all falls around from underneath you. And it doesn't, it could be things like injury, for example, with young players that can cause them to have to stop their sport. Mm. Um, so with everything in life, I think um, where I'd look here would be Bob Valeron's work on harmonious versus obsessive passion. Um, where he talks about, uh, you know, some of the athletes, for example, have a harmonious passion, which is where the sport is important to them, but they have other areas of their lives that are very important too. Um, and they have that balance. So it's not the only thing that defines them as a person. They have, Their identity is made up of a much more complex um, picture. Um, and with the obsessive passion, that's where, um, you know, everything gets... Um, I suppose, cut off, if you like, if it clashes with your sport. So family, friends and things like that. Um, and there's no other room for interests or things with other people so that um, the sport becomes the be all and end all. Um, and we know from uh, Bob Valeron's research that people with a more harmonious passion have you know, better well-being, if you like, than people with obsessive passion about mm. their sport. Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.